I want you to take your Bibles, please, and turn with me. In the Old Testament, the book of Habakkuk, we'll begin reading in just a moment. In Habakkuk chapter 1, with verse 1. Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Habakkuk is a man standing on the eve of the captivity of his nation. His name means one who embraces. And he did the right thing in this great hour of crisis in which he stood. He embraced God. He came to the Lord and found the help that can be found only in the Lord. The Babylonians are about to sweep down upon the southern kingdom of Judah. The people are about to be taken from their homeland, taken as captives and slaves to the land of Babylon. And here a man calls out to God. This book we call one of the minor prophets is really a conversation that a man has with God. He speaks with God and God speaks back to him. He speaks again to God and God speaks to him. And the Bible begins in Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. I'd like you to take the time, please, to underline one word, if you would, in the brief passage I've just read. It's found in the first verse. It's the word burden. Burden. And I will speak to you this evening on a man with a burden. A man with a burden. A man with a burden will make a difference for the Lord. Wherever he is, doesn't matter what kind of community he's in, it could be a rural area, an urban area, a suburban area, an area with lots of people or very few people, but a man with a burden will make a difference for God. Habakkuk was a man with a burden. The Bible says the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. Interesting language. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk did see. Not just the burden the prophet Habakkuk felt, but he saw. He saw. Here his burden is about knowing that God must intervene in his situation. That the Lord must rend the heavens and come down and do a work. Or else there's no hope. This man had this burden in his heart. More than a need more than seeing the problems that surrounded him, he realized unless God intervenes, this situation is hopeless and helpless. He had that kind of burden. And a man who has a burden, if he teaches a Sunday school class, this kind of burden will make a difference. He'll win people to Christ. He'll build the class. God will use him. A man with this kind of burden will make a difference on a bus route. You can find a bus route that's going downhill headed south in a hurry, and find a man with a burden who wants to see God move and work, and you're going to see some changes on the bus route. You find a man come to a church who has a burden, not because he thinks he has such tremendous ability, but he knows what God can do, 
and he longs in his soul for God to move and work. And when you find a man like that, you're going to see God come upon the scene and begin to do something in a church. Habakkuk was a man with a burden. People with a burden see beyond normal vision. They see him who is invisible. They know that God is real and God is able and God will work if we trust him by faith. Men with a burden, people with a burden, seek the salvation of those around them. And when we know that God is the only answer, He's the only hope for people, and we carry that kind of burden in our hearts, we're going to seek the salvation of others around us. A man with a burden will stir others to action. And we need to be motivated today. There's no greater motive than the fact that the Bible teaches us the love of Christ constrains us. That's the greatest motive in all of Christian service. And a man with a burden will be moved by the love of Christ. And as he's moved by the love of Christ, others will be stirred to serve the Lord also. And we need that today. Amen. People ask, how can you stir people up? Our folks are, are indifferent. Our folks are careless. And I think we're gripped today by feelings of inability. We think, what difference can my one little life make? I'll tell you, if you have a burden in your heart to see God work, your one life can make a great difference. People feel that uh, they're surrounded by people who are indifferent. They just won't move to do anything. And they say, how can you stir them up? I don't know, except if you can find somebody that's on fire for God, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, who has a burden to see God work, and throw him in the middle of it, and you're going to see some sparks and fire get started. We need people with a burden. Perhaps the greatest need we have in this land today is not for more fact, it is for more faith in God and men with a burden. This man had a burden. He couldn't take it or leave it any longer. He couldn't leave it there laying. They had to do something about it. The Bible says the burden which the prophet Habakkuk did see. We ought to be burdened because we don't have a burden. We ought to be troubled because we are not troubled. We ought to be weeping because we are not weeping. We ought to be concerned, I'm speaking to myself, because of our unconcern. There's so much God wants to do with us. And there's so little we let Him do. Don't you know that we're going to meet the Lord someday and God will say to us, why didn't you let me bless you and use you like I wanted to? Why didn't you let me work through your life like I wanted to. Why didn't you let me do something with you while you had time on earth to do something like I wanted to? We need a burden. If we could carry a burden from this place back to the place where God has allowed us to serve, our lives would not only be different, our ministries would be different. Here's a man with a burden. A burden. I want you to notice with me, please. A nation defiled by sin. The first thing we must notice, a nation defiled by sin. Now, Habakkuk called out to God and he said, Lord, how long shall I cry and thou wilt not hear? Even, he says, cry out unto thee of violence and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to hold grievance for spoiling and violence are before me. And there they that raise up strife and contention. And this conclusion, prematurely reached in verse 4, declares, Therefore, the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. 
For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Habakkuk said, when I survey the condition of our nation, Judah, this isn't, isn't any nation. These are your people, Judah. The southern kingdom of Judah, chosen, placed on a land bridge between three continents so that you can make yourself known to them and through them to the whole world. When I see the condition of our people, Lord, it appears to me that the wicked are winning. The bad guys are coming out on top. Reminds me of a story I heard about a little boy was reading. Maybe you've heard it. Lots of preachers tell it. My little boy was reading late one night, and he was in a thriller dealer right in the middle of the story where the old fellow who is about to get the young lady tied to the railroad track and the train's coming by to crush the life out of her. And with this fiendish look upon his face, he's tying the ropes. And the little boy's looking at this picture and reading the words that go along with it, and his mother happens to come in the room and says, Time to go to bed. And he said, but mother, I can't stop now. Look what's happening. He said, the old mean guy's got her tied to the track and the train's coming. She said, son, it's bedtime. Lights out. You've got to go to bed. So she turned the light out. The little fellow went under the cover, reached under his bed, got his flashlight out and brought it under the cover. And he turned to the last chapter in the book. And he saw where the hero came riding down and defeated that old villain. And he had the villain tied to the track and the beautiful lady on the back of his horse riding off into the sunset. He took his flashlight and turned back to the place where he was when his mother came in and he put the flashlight right in the face of that villain and he said, Fella, listen, if you knew how, I knew that, how this thing was going to turn out, you wouldn't be smiling like you're smiling now. And friends, we ought to know if we've read the book how it's going to turn out. It may appear the wicked are winning. And there's all kinds of things going wrong in our nation that disturb us. There's no doubt about that. And as Judah was a nation defiled by sin, ours is a nation defiled by sin. If you turn with me to the Psalms just for a moment, God's people had been carried captive. And the Word of God says in the 137th Psalm in Babylon, by the rivers of Babylon... There we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they carried us away captive, required of us a song. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? That's what they said in Babylon. But that's exactly what we have to do. We have to keep singing the Lord's song in a strange land. No doubt about it. If you turn with me to the book of Jeremiah for a moment, Jeremiah was a contemporary of Habakkuk. And Jeremiah has led of God to pen something by divine inspiration and send it to King Jehoiakim. In the 36th chapter of Jeremiah, the Bible says, And it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Chapter 36, verse 2. Take thee a roll of a book and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel and against Judah and against all the nations from the day that I spake unto thee and from the days of Josiah even unto this day. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I propose to do unto them that they may return every man from his evil way that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. 
Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord, which he had spoken unto him upon a roll of a book. And Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, I, I am shut up, I, I cannot go into the house of the Lord. Therefore, go thou and read in the roll, which thou hast written from my mouth the words of the Lord in the ears of the people in the Lord's house upon the fasting day. And also thou shalt read them in the ears of all Judah that come out of their cities. It may be they will present their supplication before the Lord and will return every one from his evil way. For great is the anger and the fury that the Lord hath pronounced against this people. And the Word of God says that Baruch took the message God gave to Jeremiah and he rendered the people. They said, listen, the king has to hear this message. This is the Word of God. It's got to go to the king. And the Bible says, if you'll follow on in verse 15, and they said unto him, Sit down now and read it in our ears. So Barak read it in their ears. Now it came to pass, when they had heard all the words, they were afraid, both one and other, and said to Barak, We will surely tell the king all these words. And they asked Barak, saying, Tell us now, how didst thou write all these words in his mouth? Then Barak answered them, He pronounced all these words unto me with his mouth, and I wrote them with ink in the book. Then said the prince unto the barrack, Go hide thee and thou Jeremiah, and let no man know where ye be. And they went into the king and the court, but they laid up the roll in the chamber of Elashim of the scribe and told all the words in the ears of the king. So the king sent Jehudai to fetch the roll, and he took it out of the Elashim of the scribe's chamber. And Jehudai read it in the ears of the king and in the ears of all the princes which stood beside the king. Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. And it came to pass that when Jehudi read three or four leaves, he cut it with a penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they were not afraid nor rent their garments, neither the king nor any of his servants that heard all these words. I want you to look, please. The prophet Jeremiah was faithful to God. He penned the word of God. He sent it to the king. The king heard the word of God, and when he heard the word of God, he said, I don't want God, and I don't want God's word. That's Judah. That's this nation that Habakkuk has a burden for. You say, what, what an example of our land. Let me show you something quickly. Notice when they burned the Word of God. You say, what an awful thing. I, I shiver to think they burned the Word of God. But the Bible says in the very next verse, yet they were not afraid. No fear of God before their eyes. Listen, if you think it's bad, they said no God and no Word of God. Friend, it's worse. They had no fear of God. No fear of God. We're living in the first generation of biblically illiterate people in our nation. This is the first generation of Americans, the first generation of Americans that are biblically illiterate. Our message is needed more today than it's ever been needed. Yet perhaps we're colder in the matter of personal evangelism than we've ever been. I say things are crumbling in today, crashing in today, that ought to be building up. You hear people demeaning children's evangelism and work of winning boys and girls to Jesus Christ through Sunday school buses and bringing the lost boys and girls to Jesus. People demean all of that today. Listen, this ought to be the greatest day ever for reaching boys and girls for Christ. Yeah, 
You're a land with no Bible and no God. And the only hope they have, the only hope they have is somebody to go out and win them to Jesus. It's the day when we're giving up on Christian education and we're trying to develop the mind of Christ in Christian education. That's the goal of Christian education. But Christian day schools are just caving in today. This ought to be a day when we're working harder than ever. This is a day when there's so much flesh in America. We're like a naked nation. Yet, we're caving in on good Bible standards in personal living. The Christian life is a holy life. It's a virtuous life. It's a moral life. It's a modest life. I know it begins in the heart, but you ought to look at a man or a woman and know they're saved by the way they look and the way they live. We're living in a nation defiled by sin. The politicians say our problem is ignorance. So the answer is education. But our problem is not ignorance, never has been ignorance. Our problem is iniquity. And the answer is not education, the answer is a Savior. And we can shout, and I can shout and say, Amen, it's true. But I wonder how real our religion is when we know the answer and we don't have the burden to give it. I'm ashamed of my own self. I am. I'm ashamed of myself. The zeal we once had, so many of us, for personal soul winning, we become, we become a, a people who are more analyst than activist. Amen. We'd rather discuss all that's wrong than do anything about it. Matter of fact, I preach as much about what's wrong in the country, I guess, as any preacher does. And we're trying to get the White House straightened out. That's the talk of the country among God's people. But I think if we could hear the voices in heaven speaking, they'd say, listen, let's talk about getting the church house straightened out. Judgment must begin at the house of God. The Bible does not say if the president would get right with God and humble himself before God. But the Bible does say if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn on their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. We have been a people who are cold and indifferent and the blame for so much of what is wrong must be laid at our own doorstep. Sure, we need a revival. And a revival is a personal thing. It begins in the hearts of individual Christians. And I'm the first that needs it. It starts as we see this man with a burden, living in a defiled nation. Notice with me, secondly, a man who was desperate for help. As I said earlier, he could no longer take it or leave it. He had to do something. As I look back across my ministry, I've been preaching 27 years. I thank God He called me to preach. I thank God that I gave my life to Him. All of my adult life has been lived in the ministry. 18 years old, God let me know He wanted me to be a preacher. Put a desire in my heart to preach His Word and I yielded to it. I'm so thankful that He's allowed me to preach. I'm grateful for His grace. But I'll tell you something. 
as we think back across our lives and ministries, we ought to realize something, that God has done His greatest work in our lives in periods of great trouble and heartache. I wrote in the, in the cover of my Bible one day thinking about some of the things I'd gone through. That God has done His greatest work in my personal life in the hours of my greatest need. There's no painless way to follow Jesus Christ. There is none. We want a crossless Christianity today. It bears no reproach. requires no faith. But you don't build strong Christians that way. You don't build strong Christians just caving in on everything like a meandering river taking the course of least resistance. It just doesn't happen. Some of the things we enjoy most in song, in Christian education, were born in times of great adversity in the lives of people. You know that's true. Here's a man who said, Lord, my heart is heavy. I must make this point as clearly as I can. He was not under just a heavy load about the problems. That was not his burden. I firmly believe that was not his burden. Sometimes that gets to be our burden. Just talk about everything that's wrong. That's easy to do. It's easy to do. And you get depressed talking about it sometimes. I don't believe for a minute that's where Habakkuk stopped. I believe that Habakkuk did not just think about all that was wrong with Judah. His burden was not just concerning problems with people. His burden was for God to do something about it. He took it to the next level. God, do something. And the Bible says, if you'll turn back to Habakkuk chapter 1, the Word of God says, when he calls out to God, he says, O Lord, how long? And in chapter 2, the Bible says, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. There's a man acknowledging that he's a sinner. He needs reproving. That's part of the work of the Word of God to reprove us. He said, Lord, Babylon is coming down, so you say. Judah needs judgment. And God says, yes, I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to send the Babylonians down. He said, Lord, they're more wicked than Judah. I'm going to the mountain and I'm going to wait on God to answer me. I'm going to have an answer. He says, I know the Lord is going to reprove me. He's going to, he's going to show me where I'm wrong. God's going to come to my aid personally. Do you know before we can ever do a work in our churches, we must first let God do a work in our hearts. That's where it has to start. And the Lord speaks to the man. And the great key verse is given to us in verse 4 of chapter 2. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. That's for all the unsaved world. And then the Lord turns the coin to the other side for all the saved. But the just shall live by his faith. I'll tell you, the more I understand that, the greater joy I find in Jesus Christ. God has designed the Christian life so that everything 
if everything doesn't work out the way you hoped it would, ever the way you planned it would, if everything doesn't work out the way you want it to, you can still be a victorious Christian because Jesus never changes. The just shall live by his own personal faith in God. God has designed the Christian life so a Noah can be victorious in an old world that's perishing. So a Daniel can stand for God when every other knee is bowed. God's designed the Christian life so that by your own personal faith in God, God can come to your aid in your great time of need. Not only is there a nation defiled, there's a a man desperate for help. And God helps him. God speaks to him. And we need to get desperate. Holy desperation. You know, the situation is desperate. We'd get no argument on that, would we? I believe America's getting its last wake-up call. The situation is desperate, but it doesn't seem like the saints are. Honestly, I get ashamed of myself about how much talking I do about what's wrong and how little praying I do about it. I get ashamed of myself about talking about how many needs we have trying to lead this college. Here's a man who didn't go on a campaign among people. He went to the throne of grace and said, God, i got to have help. In other words, it's so desperate, Lord, that it's not going to get any better till you intervene. And I really wonder if we've come to that place. If we've really come to that place. Have you ever had to give up on somebody you love and give them over to God? Have you ever had to realize that your speeches and talking and argument didn't work anymore? And the greatest thing you could do for your son was pray for him and give him to God? Or the greatest thing you could do for your daughter is pray for her and give her to God? Or the greatest thing you could do with somebody in the church that just is a thorn in your flesh is just give them to God? There was no longer a personal debate. It was a matter of trusting God with that problem or that person and letting the Lord work. Have you ever gotten there? Habakkuk had a burden. He was a man with a burden. In a defiled nation, he became a desperate man. The third thing I'm going to share with you is the fact there's a God who delights in mercy. He delights in mercy. We'll come back to Habakkuk in a moment, but I want you to turn with me just over a bit to the book of Micah. Here's a passage we ought to try to memorize, especially in this wicked, apostate day in which we live. The Bible says in Micah chapter 7 and verse 18, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He delights in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Think of that. 
Thank God the Bible says someday there's going to be no more sea. The Word of God says He delighteth in mercy. Now put yourself in a backup's place, would you? He's living in this defiled nation of Judah. God has said there's no doubt about it. The judgment of God is coming. No doubt about it. You can't change it. You're not going to reverse it. We think today in our nation that one sweeping blow of judgment is going to be the way God judges our nation. But you might go out someday when a storm has blown through and see a tree that's fallen over in your yard. And notice if you look carefully, it's been decaying for years on the inside. And one final gust blew it over. And I think we're decaying for years on the inside. We're rotten in our philosophical core. We've gone through a mental revolution in this country. People don't think the way they used to think. We're finding out more and more that the church really is a holy minority within an unholy majority. We're finding it out. And we start thinking about, Lord, what can we do? And we talk about it. And today the, the chief thing people like to do is discuss how bad it is. If you stop short of saying, God, I've, I've already come to grips with how bad it is, please, Jesus, intervene. Lord, help. That's where we've got to go. Realizing He's a God who delights in mercy. He delights in mercy. Do you know here's a man who started out praying for God to do something because the wicked were winning. If you turn to the end of the book in Habakkuk chapter seven, chapter 3, verse 17, he says, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, and the labor of the olives shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. You say, yeah, here's a guy who came to the place who said, Lord, if everything fails, I know you're still on the throne. Isn't that wonderful? He said, God's just going to barely pull me through. That's not what the Bible says. Verse 19, the Lord is my strength. He will make my feet like hinds feet. He'll make me to walk upon mine high places to the chief singer on my string against me. He said, God's going to make me jump like a, like a deer. God's going to bring me up to the high places. This isn't something just grinding through. Brother, this is victory in Jesus. That's what God can give us. Because he's a God who delights in mercy. I love the 136th Psalm. I love it so much I'll read it to you. It'll bless your soul. It's a God who delights in mercy. Listen to it. Psalm 136, verse 1. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks unto the God of gods, for his mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endureth forever. To him who alone doth great wonders for his mercy endureth forever. To him who by wisdom made the heavens for his mercy endureth forever. To him that stretched out the earth above the waters for his mercy endureth forever. To him that made great lights for his mercy endureth forever. The sun to rule by day for his mercy endureth forever. The moon and stars to rule by night for his mercy endureth forever. To him that smote Egypt in their firstborn for his mercy endureth forever. And brought out Israel from among them for his mercy endureth forever. With a strong hand with a stretched out arm for his mercy endureth forever. To him which divided the Red Sea into parts for his mercy endureth forever. And made Israel to pass through the midst of it for his mercy endureth forever. 
endureth forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and the host in the Red Sea for his mercy endureth forever. To him which led his people through the wilderness for his mercy endureth forever. To him which smote great kings for his mercy endureth forever. And slew famous kings for his mercy endureth forever. Zion king of the Amorites for his mercy endureth forever. And Og the king of Bashan for his mercy endureth forever. And gave their land for inheritance for his mercy endureth forever. Even inheritance unto Israel for his, his servant for his mercy endureth forever. Who remembered us in our lowest state for his mercy endureth forever. And hath redeemed us from our enemies for his mercy endureth forever. Praise God who giveth food to all flesh for his mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks unto the God of heaven for His mercy endureth forever. Thank God He's been merciful to me. I deserve to die and go to hell forever. And He's a God who delights in mercy. Thank God He's a God of mercy. People need that message. We don't need to back up preaching about hell. Let's preach it hot like it is. We don't need to back up preaching about sin. Churches who have built their ministry on accommodation will soon get sin completely out. Men need to know that they're wretched, lost, hell-bound sinners. But there's a God of mercy who will forgive them and save them. That's the message. We need to get out of this building with it and get out in the streets with it. For His mercy endureth forever. No wonder Habakkuk learned how to pray. If you'll turn with me back to the book of Habakkuk for a moment. He prayed in chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk. The prophet upon Shiganoth. Oh Lord, I've heard thy speech and was afraid. Oh Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath remember mercy he said God I see the judgment's coming Lord you've made known your speech to us has God made known his speech to you do you know how it's going to end do you know the judgment of God is coming upon a Christ rejecting world do you believe that hell is a screaming scorching flaming place from which to save the souls of men do you believe that? Do you believe the beautiful Savior came down from heaven's glory to bleed and die on Calvary's cross with a thorn-pierced brow, nail-pierced hands, and spittle upon His face? And the Bible says, for the joy that was set before Him. Tell me, what joy in the crown of thorns? What joy in the spittle? What joy in the piercing of side and nailing of hands? What joy... When the wrath of God reigned on the Son of God, what joy when He became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. What joy is that? The joy is because He opened a door of mercy. That's the joy. So wretched, hell-deserving sinners could walk through it to glory. Mercy. Seeing of His mercy. He's a God who delights in mercy. It's time independent Baptist preachers and independent Baptist deacons and Sunday school teachers and everybody else realizes that we deserve to die and go to hell just as much as the most vile human walking the streets of this city tonight. No merit 
of our own. Only by the precious blood of Jesus. He delights in mercy. What a wonderful Savior. Habakkuk said, now I learn how to pray, Lord. I see you're not going to save all of Judah. But I'm going to pray that in wrath, in the wrath that's coming, remember mercy. Lord, send a revival and save as many as possible while there's time. I believe with all my heart that's the way we ought to be praying. And wrath, remember mercy. I'm here tonight because of the mercy of God. How good He's been to me. My home was not a home when I was a boy growing up. But honored the Lord. I wish it had been. My daddy was a professional gambler. And we, we spent our Sundays doing other things besides going to church. But God reached down in mercy and saved me. Listen, I've never gotten over that. I really mean that. I've never gotten over that. I never see a little girl come and get saved or have an opportunity to leave with the Lord. They don't think about one of my sisters. I never see a little old mean, mischievous boy come to Christ. I don't think about my brother or myself. But God saved me. I said, Lord, I want to get everybody in my family saved. Last year we saw the last one come in. He's a God of mercy. He remembered mercy. Old Adam sinned against God in the Garden of Eden. Life wrecked and ruined now. Separated from God because of his sin. Dead in his trespass and sin. But the Bible says, and God came walking in the cool of the day because he's a God of mercy. All through the Bible, you see, he remembers mercy. When I started out preaching, my daddy had died when I was 14 years old. We had to call a preacher out of a phone book with a reverend by his name to come and conduct his funeral. We didn't know any reverends. Somebody met us at a graveside in Selma, Alabama. And I think they read a few Bible verses and had a prayer, and we left. Later, when I understood what it meant to be saved, I thought, where's my daddy? My mother told me about a year before my daddy died, I believe your daddy's got religion. He was whistling a song called, What a Friend We Had in Jesus. Hadn't gone to church any time in all of his life, to my remembrance. When I was 19 years old, I was preaching the Second Baptist Church in my hometown. And a preacher said to me, I'm glad to have you here today. He said, you know, there's an old house up there above the church. And he pointed where it was. And I recognized the house as a little rest home where my father was when he was very ill. He said, I just happened to think while you were preaching today that there was an old man I went up there to visit one day. Did you ever have any relative live up there? And he pointed to the room at the corner of the house. And I said, yes, that's where my daddy was for a number of months. He said, well, you'll be glad to know that one day I went up there and led him to Jesus. I want to tell you something. I don't deserve to go to heaven. He didn't deserve to go to heaven. And you don't deserve to go to heaven. We've got a God of mercy. Finally, Ola Becker said, Lord, I understand. I, I know Judas is so bad. You're doing right. 
by sending the Babylonians down. I know God. There's a real heaven and a real hell. I understand that. Dear God, while there's time and still hope, please, in the wrath, remember mercy. Listen, our great sin is not that we don't know that. It is that we don't tell that. May there be a convicting of the Spirit of God upon our hearts that we'll tell it. That we will tell it. A defiled nation. No doubt about it, we've got one, don't we? America is imploding. Not exploding, imploding, dying from the inside. We must ask ourselves, not just the preachers among us, but all of us, are we desperate people? We have to be honest. Because it's for sure that we have a God who delights in mercy. It's just the thing God enjoys doing. Isn't that wonderful? You say, what does God like more than anything else? He likes forgiving sinners and showing mercy. Let's pray together, may we? Father, guide us by your Spirit. Help us to please thee. Help us to lift Jesus high and let people be drawn to him. Use, dear Lord, me, I pray, in, in a way that only you can. I yield my life to thee. But I want you to get glory from it. Please, Jesus, help me now. In thy precious name I pray and ask these things. Amen.